This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Gina Chong, Washington columnist for Reuters Breaking News. This week, we went to Capitol Hill to talk to Republican Congressman Mark Meadows of North Carolina, who is head of the Freedom Caucus in the U.S. House of Representatives. It's part of the exchange's conversations this fall with elected officials across both sides of the aisle to talk about governance and how to fix U.S. politics at all levels. Meadows has a reputation for keeping the Republican establishment on its toes through his caucus, which has around 40 members. They are known as the most conservative wing and played a role in the 2015 resignation of House Speaker John Boehner. Now that Republicans control both the legislative and executive branches, we talked about what that means for getting things done in Congress, or not, as has been the case so far this year. Surprisingly, he also discusses his openness to compromise, including working with Democrats. That has ramifications for several issues, most importantly, tax reform. Meadows is still worried about the deficit, but he's willing to take some short-term pain if the reforms are big enough to produce at least 3% sustained GDP growth in the long term. The Republican Party is also facing somewhat of a revolt from within, with more conservative candidates going against traditional GOP-backed politicians for the 2018 midterm elections. Meadows notes that if incumbent Republicans don't have accomplishments to show voters, they could be headed for the door, including himself. So since we're talking about governance and uh, how politicians get things done (laughs) these days, I wanted to start off just more broadly uh, in terms of sort of philosophically your approach to it. And Paul Ryan, after the first Obamacare repeal vote in the House, uh, just talked about how the Republican Party still needs some work on transitioning from being an opposition party to mm. a governing party. And I wanted to get your thoughts on, on that and how you see the differences between the two and, and what your approach is now that you are the majority party, but right. you're, you also represent a certain part of that. Yeah, I think the, probably the biggest miscalculation is is that there should be a difference between a governing party and an opposition party. Mm. So I, I don't even agree to the premise. Uh, you know, either you come here to represent the people that you represent, and that should be consistent with regardless of who's in the White House or who's not in the White House because we're a representative form of government. So that's more my philosophy uh, to suggest that all of a sudden we need to change our tactics hmm. because we have a, uh, a different uh, person in the White House is to ignore 
uh, that's to assume that people are not principled in their stand. Uh, and for me, uh, I came to, to Congress with an understanding that my voting card didn't belong to me. It belongs to the people I represent. And, uh, and that means that I need to espouse their values, probably more so than my own, each and every day. And so I, I keep hearing about this, well, we need to learn how to govern. Mm. Um, I'm not sure what that looks like. If you look at the last <laughs> decade, is there any good representation, both Democrat and Republican, sure. of a governing party? Yeah. I don't know that there is. And so I think the, the American people want us to get things done. And so if you're saying uh, from a philosophical standpoint, how do we get things done? I think uh, for us, it's all about using uh, a leverage of you know, a group of caucus members who will, are willing to vote as a block. We don't always, but we're willing to do that. And then quietly and perhaps even behind the scenes work with some of our more moderate members of the uh, Republican conference as well as uh, Democrats to, to find areas of agreement. And uh, I think if the, the most underreported aspect about the Freedom Caucus is probably uh, just the assumption that every Freedom Caucus member is exactly alike. Mm -hmm. And then every Freedom Caucus member really has a position that is contrary to either Democrats or moderate Republicans. And that's just not the case. In fact, I've often thought it might be worthwhile to have uh, people like yourself to come along and shadow uh, mm. uh, the caucus for a week or two just to see the, the different dynamics that, sure. that play. Well, uh, yeah, I've talked to some Democrats who say, you know, personally, they're good friends with you. That oh, I have, I have, I have, right. I have some dear, dear, uh, deep friendships. And we may not be able to agree on much of anything, but what that's done is because of that real friendship among some of my Democrat colleagues is we're looking for ways to work together. Jerry Conley and I are working together on several things as it relates to the federal workforce. Elijah Cummings and I are working together on... Uh, Not two names you would put together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Elijah Cummings and I are working on uh, prescription drugs and, and transparency issues. You know, now we're reaching out on tax reform to you know, both Democrats in the House and in the Senate to try to find uh, common ground. Because if you really represent a district like mine, yes, it's conservative, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's as strongly Republican. It's, it's conservative Democrats. And so uh, part of that is, is more of a populist movement than mm -hmm. it is necessarily a conservative Tea Party movement or anything else, and that type of voter is a lot of times agnostic when it comes to the party affiliation. They're more about, well, what's you know, what is Congress going to do on my behalf? And so, so I've got a good relationship with those across the aisle, uh, and uh, it allows me to find some areas of common ground, uh, not widely reported. It's interesting yeah. that you've said <laughs> that you've talked to some Democrats who actually like me. That may make news. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I was I was surprised because outwardly it is seen as you know, and it's it's not even just the Freedom Caucus. It's just the, the right. two parties in general, right. in, in this kind of environment, yeah. it's seen yeah. as so divisive and. 
Well, I think it comes back to my philosophy. There's two things. I believe that there's an element of truth in every argument, so it's looking for that, how much of that uh, uh, is truthful in someone else's argument, even though it may be 180 degrees opposite of mine. And I think the other is is showing everybody the respect, uh, mutual respect, that you hopefully uh, can earn uh, for yourself, but showing uh, your colleagues that respect regardless of their position. Uh, It's much, much more difficult to have a uh, very contentious debate with somebody that you like. And and yet, uh, does that mean that you don't debate it with, you know, passion and you know, continued really emphasis on what you believe is right? No, you certainly stay to those principles, but at the same time, do it in a respectful manner. Uh, when you get into the name calling, I um, that's just not something that that I think is appropriate, even if, you know, I think people who uh, do that, and I'm talking about members of Congress primarily, it's because they've they've lost the argument on the debate. Yeah. So you resort to other tactics. Other tactics. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Well, how do you explain to voters now what's going on in Washington? Because there is an expectation that with one party controlling, you know, the legislative and executive branch that they would see more things happening. Um, And obviously there, there are things in the works, but I think there's also maybe some disappointment that certain things haven't gotten done oh, yet. Yeah. So how do you explain to them, you know, what's what's actually going on here? You know, I think there's widespread disappointment uh, in terms of things not getting done. Uh, even widespread disappointment among members who think that we should be getting things done. In fact, I've often said is uh, I would rather us move expeditiously, even if I lose the argument, and get things done versus it having to be perfect in my way. Now that's not the narrative that gets reported. I mean, a narrative that's out there, you know, it's it's my way or the highway yeah. and nothing could be further from the truth. And in fact, I think if we follow regular order, many times the legislation that comes out of that will be less conservative, not more conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know, I just had a member uh, of Congress leave here, a freshman member of Congress leave here. There's a frustration because their input is not being asked for. And they're not a member of the Freedom Caucus. Mm-hmm. In fact, if anything, I don't think they will ever be a member of the Freedom Caucus. But we have 435 members in the House, 100 senators. Every one of them have something to offer. And yet we get in this divisive role in, in Congress to suggest that they shouldn't be talking to anybody. The president talks to Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and, and gets criticized immediately. Mm. And uh, now, would I prefer that he makes a deal with me versus yeah. them? Sure. <laughs> sure. But it's, you, know, you can't criticize somebody for talking to, to everybody to hopefully get their perspective. So what do you think the holdup is? Do you blame leadership? Do you blame, you know, just the sort of mechanics? I mean, I know the Senate's been more sort of problematic in, in some areas in the House. Well, I, I think there uh, there's enough blame to go around for everybody. Yeah. So I typically don't point fingers just at leadership or, or just at myself. In fact, I try to look in the mirror and say, okay, what part that do you have in, in uh, looking at this and this not moving forward? 
And so it, it does call me back to the table often where I will deal with people right now. I'm dealing with Ron Johnson and Lindsey Graham in the Senate, uh, myself and Tom Carper, I mean, uh, not uh, Tom MacArthur, on the whole CSR fix. Uh, that's not something, it was not at the top of my bucket list. Sure. You know, continuing CSR payments has never been something that, you know, I espoused out on the campaign trail. And yet it's, it's something that we have to deal with based on where we are uh, constitutionally. If it's going to get appropriated, it needs to come through Congress. I agree with the president on that. And so I've looked at dealing with two senators that I wouldn't no normally deal with. Tom, obviously, he and I have had some back and forth already on health care, but working with him, he's a trusted broker from, that comes from a very different district. Sure. And what I've learned about him is that he's thoughtful. He's willing to take political risk, and I've got to do the same. And then I've learned a whole new appreciation for Lindsey Graham. I mean, he has got to be the funniest guy on yeah. Capitol Hill. Uh, but but he, he made the debates uh, much more entertaining. Oh, uh, than they, they are. I mean, you, know, you, you can't help but like the guy. And yeah. but I've also found that, you know, uh, we, I mean, we spoke a couple of times over the weekend, and uh, he works around the clock to try to get it done. So I think we need to be more engaged uh, like that. But we're so used to failing. Hmm that we don't know what winning looks like. Mm -hmm. And so you talk about a governing party, we need to understand what winning looks like. When are we gonna win? And right now, we're talking about tax reform. Well, does anybody know when we plan to vote on it yeah. in the House? Yeah, I mean, now, I happen to know when we're going to vote on it on the, on the House floor, but most members don't. Mm -hmm. That lack of transparency is not good for the process. Somehow, yeah. we've got to get beyond. We're going to hide everything until the last possible minute, and then we're going to open it up and have, you know, 72 hours of faux debate and and vote on it. Yeah. Let's let's have an open, transparent process. Let the amendment process, and in the end, conservatives probably don't win on that but it becomes a, a process that ultimately uh, serves our nation yeah. better. Well, and I definitely do want to get to um, the tax uh, proposal, but going back to the CSR, I mean, like even something like that, I think people would be surprised that you are even open to having a discussion on that. Yeah, listen, I, I was a business guy and I made my living for many, many years putting people together that had two different agendas. and. It's real easy to discount somebody and, and say, okay, they're not going to negotiate. Uh, and that's what, you know, really uh, was probably right under my name before it said North Carolina Republican mm -hmm. was probably will not negotiate, was placed <laughs> there by some in leadership very early on. It's just not who I am. I, I, give and take is, is what we've all been about. But I don't bluff either. So if I tell somebody I'm, I'm a no for a particular reason, I'm a no. And in this town, they believe that no means maybe. And, <laughs> and if I meant maybe, I'd say maybe. And, and so now people are starting to understand that if I say I'm, I'm a no, that I'll be a no, but that there's a very small segment that's a definite no. There's a whole larger segment that's a maybe based on finding mutually agreeable concessions that we can make. And uh, the next article that will probably come out 
is because I negotiate on a variety of topics, including CSRs, is that I'm not as conservative as everybody thinks. So I'm waiting for that one to come out, but I'm sure it will come out in the coming you know, days or weeks. Yeah. Uh, which well, I find laughable, yeah. but that's okay. You're, you're uh, damned if you do and you're damned yeah, if you but, don't sometimes. But, um, <laughs> this is not a career for me. This yeah. is a temporary job. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, I can, if I can advance things even at personal cost, which may send me home, I'm willing to do that. And that includes uh, making deals uh, on things that directly affect the people that I represent back home. Sure. Well, on on uh, the leadership issue, I mean, you had a bit of a contentious history with the past no. leader of the house. Tell me it's not so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, just just a bit, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, what does that mean for you in in working with the current leadership, whether it's Paul Ryan or Kevin McCarthy or others? I mean, there were you know a couple steps on Obamacare where it had to be adjusted, but the House did get it through. Right. Um, is I mean, what does that say about, you know, the possibilities of working together? Yeah, I mean, I, I was on the phone with uh, the speaker and the leader uh, over the, the last couple of days working on both tax reform and the budget and having good conversations with both of them. I think the real uh, paradigm shift that has to occur is, is, are you willing to engage in a conversation that may mean that you don't get all of what you want but that you get some of what you want. So working with the current leadership, I've enjoyed doing that. Sometimes you have to force that, and that's part of what the Freedom Caucus is all about, is we have forced a negotiating position. So now that we're at the table to negotiate, I think they'll they'll be pleasantly surprised that we have a whole bunch of people willing to negotiate. Up until that point, we weren't at the table to Mm -hmm. even negotiate, Mm -hmm. and so, it takes rather drastic measures in order to uh, be heard. It's not my style. I'm a very compliant individual, uh, uh, in ways very shy, and I've had to stretch myself to figure out a way to actually use tactics. And so what I did was I took business tactics, applied them to a small group of, of individuals and said, how can I create leverage to make sure that I am part of any negotiating mm-hmm. position? And that's what we've done. Yeah. Well, and how do you then, you were talking about the, the other member who was asking you for advice, sort of make sure that's spread across um, other people because one of the complaints is this issue of, you know, whether it's Obamacare, whether it's tax reform, that it's only, you know, the certain group of people who are really negotiating the details and then maybe you'll find out, you know, the week of the vote or something, right. what what's actually in it. And that's been problematic just a, across uh, Congress this year. I think it has. I think what, you know, my advice to this individual was for them, uh, in this particular individual, I wasn't encouraging them to become a member of the Freedom Caucus and quite frankly, uh, just the opposite. I was saying probably it was best for their political career Mm. to not be a member of the caucus. (laughs) Uh, And that doesn't necessarily always translate uh, for everybody, but for this particular individual, that was true. I think the biggest component, uh, as I see it, is if we actually had working groups that were working on every issue, so not just Obamacare and tax reform, but immigration policy, Mm -hmm. welfare reform, uh, civil service reform, 
allow some to have passion. Here's what happens. So often we have working groups that really aren't working groups. They're a group of people that get together to discuss it, but they have no decision-making authority. And so it becomes very frustrating. You can only ask a person to participate in something that is meaningless for a short <laughs> period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and working very closely with, with our leadership and other members. I think the more we talk, we actually talk. I'm, I'm finding that I have a great appreciation for some of my more moderate members. Mm -hmm. And I will come to their defense, you know, even on issues that we may disagree on. We'll come to their defense. And, uh, and so it's trying to look at it from their perspective. So I think that has to be contagious across the conference. We have to get beyond this us versus them, even within our own Republican Party, because that's, that's really how we've, we've legislated in the past. It's, well, you better do it or the moderates are going to win. And they go to the moderates, you better do it or the Freedom Caucus is going to win or the RSC is going to win. I think we need to talk about how 240 members of the GOP conference can win and hopefully, uh, you know, another 150 or so Democrats can win. I mean, uh, I know part of me is just being transparent with some of my Democrat colleagues on little things like, when are we going home? Mm. You know, are we going to get out of here? Yeah. Well, yeah, we're, we're getting out of here. Yeah. Trust me, we're not going to hold it up. Yeah. You still get to go home. But it's just little common courtesies mm -hmm. that you would want if the shoe were on the other foot. Yeah. And one day it will be on the other foot. Yeah. And hopefully when the Democrats are in uh, leadership, they'll realize that, you know, that Mark is not only their friend when they're in the majority, but I'll be the friend when they're in the majority, yeah. so. Yeah. Well, are you, are you surprised that um, Paul Ryan has had a, as difficult a time as he's had in sort of, you know, galvanizing the troops and, and getting policies through? Because there was a sense of, you know, before he took this role that he was this policy wonk and, and had this sort of reputation about him, but it, uh, and maybe it's not entirely his fault, but there is a sense that that maybe was, a bit more misplaced or, or wasn't as... Yeah, um, I, you know, here, here's the thing is, is uh, the speaker is a policy wonk on two areas, budget and tax. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, he's not a policy wonk. I mean, everybody translates <laughs> that, to that expertise yeah. to everything else, <laughs> mm -hmm. but it doesn't make him a healthcare expert, mm -hmm. I can assure you. Mm -hmm. uh, no more than, you know, going to McDonald's makes him a Big Mac. Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't, it, you know, just because you're there and around it doesn't make it necessarily happen. But I think, you know, the speaker is, he's got a tough task. You know, he's trying to coordinate different uh, members, you know, from members that have, you know, either a marginally Republican district or a Democrat district to members like me that, you know, have that can get elected fairly easy. And and those are very different constituencies. But I think it, it would serve him well to allow for a whole lot more open discussion. We have a cross-sectional meeting with the speaker that has conservatives and moderates of our conference, and so every week. And it's all about getting things done. Mm -hmm. If there's one thing that is unifying us, it is not a common enemy other than the common enemy being time. And time is about to win. Time always wins. Yeah. But if we do not get things done, many of us, some of us will go home. Yeah. Well, so on that front, um, turning to tax reform, yeah. 
that's obviously a, a big haul in, in any situation. Um, given some of the worries about what it could do to the deficit, and obviously the, the House is figuring out um, how to resolve the, the Senate um, resolution. Right. You know, what, what are your thoughts on that, just given how much your caucus is known for being tough on the deficit issue? And, you know, are you willing to give that up or let it go and, uh, you know, for the sake of getting this done? But what does that mean for your principles? Well, I don't, I don't know that, that any of us have uh, become less focused on the deficit in the long term. In the short term, without a doubt, this particular legislation budget slash tax reform package will increase the deficit in the short run. The real question is, can we get the economy moving again at a rate of 3.0 GDP or better on a consistent basis? Because it hasn't been consistently that good. That's a very worthwhile goal. It's a ambitious goal. And even though some would suggest we can do four or five, I mean, I'm a numbers guy and getting this economy to consistently perform at 3.0 or better will be very difficult. But if we can lower taxes enough, and for me, it's all, of, all been that you don't typically pay for tax cuts. Everybody talks about paying for tax cuts. You don't pay for tax cuts. You you hope uh, that you spur the economy along, and and you know you can call it supply side or you know whatever you want to call it. But in doing that, be very aggressive on the rates. Get the rates down. Get you know more cash coming in. Stimulus. Grow the economy. And with that, then start to couple other reform uh, measures. Now, tax reform by itself. Is so unbelievably complicated and hard that attaching it to something else that would lose some of our moderates or even some of our Democrats is, you have to understand that. I mean, the, the budget we put forth uh, cut $203 billion. If I had it my way, it would have been $300 plus billion. <laughs> We're going to have to take it a couple of steps at a time, you know, do tax reform, come back first quarter of next year, maybe look at some welfare reform. Uh, attach that to you know another mandatory uh, spending issue. I mean, a must-pass piece of legislation or another reconciliation vehicle. But I think the bigger they get, and tax reform is big enough that doing it uh, on a revenue-neutral basis is just shifting around pots of money. I'm mm-hmm. not a big fan of that. So, are there any red lines though for you? On, yeah, I, on that I think. Issue? Well, um, we've looked at the Senate budget. I mean, yeah. I've, I've known for four weeks we're going to adopt this the Senate budget at 1.5 trillion. I mm-hmm. mean, for us to suggest otherwise is to be intellectually dishonest. And so, I think the the red lines are if we're not as aggressive. So, if we do the 1.5 trillion and we end up with a tax cut at 23 mm-hmm. percent on corporate, I'm out. If we end up with a small, you want to keep it at twenty, twenty and yeah. twenty-five, and double the standard deduction, mm-hmm. and and because we can cut some of the deductions in order to make it work, mm-hmm. and generally we don't want to do it. And you're seeing that happen right now with state and local. Yeah. Is that's a pay for it? Mm-hmm. They don't want to pay for it with state and local, um, and so I'm not willing to to do a 1.5 trillion dollar measure that would increase deficits over the short term without it being very aggressive and putting more money in people's pockets going forward. Uh, and 
I can make a compelling case that with adequate GDP growth, that it doesn't balance over 10, but it could balance over a little over 15 years. Mm. And um, you liken that to somebody having a 15-year mortgage on their house. Most people have a 30-year mortgage. And so if it pays for it over a period of time, uh, then you can make a real compelling case that we should do it. Can we ignore our spending problem? No. If we just control the rate of government growth, cap it at two and a half to two and three quarters percent over time, we'll balance out as well. Yeah. Historically, we haven't shown the willingness to do yeah. that. Yeah. No, the, you know, eating your spinach part hasn't always been That's so, right. We always so want to feed them candy yeah, instead of spinach. Exactly. Yeah. So just last question. Yeah. Just looking to the future, the 2018 midterms aren't too far off. Um, There's obviously well-publicized efforts by Steve Bannon and some others in terms of his recruitment. Um, You know, what do you think about that effort and just the future of the Republican Party in, in general in terms of, you know, sort of directionally, but also then again, what that means for, for governing if you have these different factions within a party. Which well, you know well, again, it gets, we've come full circle. Yeah. I mean, what's a governing party? If you were to suggest that Democrats or Republicans over the last decade have governed in a way that represents their constituency, I would say I haven't seen a good example on either side. Sure. So the American people, when they elected Donald Trump, they sent one very loud message. We're tired of politics as usual, and so uh, they want to shake things up. I can tell you what I'm hearing back home is uh, the, the Steve Bannon effort to shake things up is being applauded unbelievably so. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, less so here in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and uh, it's, yeah. it's causing major consternation mm-hmm. and major major pushback, and I'm not saying that every senator needs a challenge. I don't know that I go that that far, but I will say this. If, if we do not start getting paid on results, then it's time for all of us to go home. We'll see how Meadows' warning plays out as the tax reform battle is just beginning, but it will definitely make for an interesting rest of the year and into 2018. Anyway, That's it for now. We will be back next week with another edition of the Exchange Podcast. I'd like to thank our producers, Kate Duguid and Andrew D'Antonio, and all of you for listening. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for the Exchange, the Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Gina Chan. Thanks for tuning in. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.